0: Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Witham, and welcome to season two of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. In this season, we want to focus on practical discussions about unity within the Stone Campbell movement and beyond. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it that we may all be one so that the world may know. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread, and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Ground Unity Podcast. Well, welcome back to the Common Ground Unity Podcast. We're so glad to have you join us this week as we continue our discussion with John Mark Hicks, uh, author of In Search for the Pattern, My Journey in Interpreting the Bible. And I might say, man, a number of other books as well that you'd be blessed to read. John Mark's also, I mentioned this at the top of our bro- our podcast last week, uh, he has a, a blog uh, website at johnmarkhicks.com, and you can read a lot of articles, blog posts, and uh, things that he's written there. You can also go to Wineskins and get a number of classes that he's taught. On some of the things that we're talking about here, he mentions, you know, looking at the, the narrative of Scripture, the, the, the drama, the story, and he's got a great series on Wineskins on YouTube of the whole theodrama in five acts that you'd be blessed to listen to. So we're glad to have John Mark Hicks back with us to continue this discussion. Uh, Tina, glad to have and be back with you as well. My co-host, how are you doing today? And, And after you tell us, why don't you lead us into this broadcast?
1: Yeah, everything is good. Uh, I'm excited for um, this series and to have John Mark back with us and really hope that our listeners have been blessed and challenged, encouraged by the different um, interviews that we've been able to have. And I encourage them to check out our Facebook page and be sure and give us some uh, feedback. So, As we go into this uh, second podcast with John Mark Hicks, in part four of the book, you write, All this sounds good. I remember saying to myself, but how does it help me address the questions that have occupied the attention of my people? I had been so focused on searching for the pattern and obeying it that I was not immediately apparent how this theological hermeneutic would help me answer the sorts of questions for which my people wanted answers. So let's move from theory, so to speak, into practical application.
2: Well, thank you. It's a joy to be back and grateful for the invitation and for uh, the dialogue last week. And that was very, very helpful to me, at least. Uh, maybe it was to somebody else, too. Uh, this is a good question, because I think it is really important that, that we not just be theorizing here, that we not just stay in the abstract or in theory. That The whole point of reading the Bible, it seems to me, is to discern the will of God so that we might practice it, so that we might do the will of God. Uh, so getting to that moment is an important part of the process. Uh, so let me draw, a, let me give an example here that I use in the book as well. Uh, and I use a, have an extended use of this in the book, but uh, let me give a very brief account of it. So, in a blueprint world, you you want to, uh, does God command us to give? When does God command us to give? How does God command us to give? How does God command us to resource money, share money? To whom should we share the money? Um, how does this work corporately? How does this work individually? And, and we search the Bible to find the blueprint for that. And in fact, some people have come up with uh, uh, answers to those questions that are quite diverse. You know, one of the major divisions in Churches of Christ was over whether you could take church treasury money and, su- and supply the needs of non-Christians. Can you take money out of the treasury and help non-Christians? Some said yes, some said no. Well, that was about a blueprint search. It seems to me that, that, that's, that that's just headed in the wrong direction. Um, that rather the question is, okay, our God is a giving God. So how do we know God is a giving God? Well, creation is a gift. The gift of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. God, uh, Jesus is a giver. He became the one who was rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. In other words, we are a people who are to be shaped by the generosity of God's own life and that God poured out his grace on, um, on sinners, right? When we were at enemies, Christ died for us. So the the whole notion that we could not help non-Christians from the church treasury just did not square with the reality. It seems to me of a God who gives God's own self, gives God's Son, for the sake of those who are already who are God's enemies, uh, already on the outside. Um, so when I'm thinking of okay well what kind of general what's the generosity that we're supposed to have here what how do we obey Jesus how do we obey God in terms of generosity well I think Pauls Paul laid it out for us there in second Corinthians 8 and 9 as he tries to convince the Corinthians to share their resources with a group of people who they don't know who are of a different race who are in a different geography who have different customs who are different Presumably, color even, and Paul says, "Let me tell you how why we should do that. We should do that because of who God is. <laughs> That's why we should do it." Um, and Paul doesn't specify, you know, when or how. Rather, he um, he gives them a theological resource out of which to act and embody the gospel. So, here, for example, let me let me put it down to brass tacks here. I would love for God to have said, you should only spend, you spend no more than 20% of your income on your housing. Wow. Now, if God had gotten that specific, I would have said, yes, sir. (laughs) You know, yes, God, I'll do that. I'll obey. But that's not what God said. God said, I want you to be so generous that some do not have too much and others don't have too little because that's what I do with the manna. That's how I handle the manna. I want you to handle your resources like that too. Now that's a lot harder. (laughs) That that goes to the integrity of the heart. Do we really believe the story? Because I think that's what Paul's asking the Corinthians. Do you really believe this story? If you really believe that the one who was rich became poor so that you who are poor might become rich, do you believe that story? If you believe that story, you're not going to ask about um, why I should be giving, or even when I should be given, or what specific way I should give. You're going to use your your whole self as a grace to other people because God has been God's whole self as a grace to you. And that becomes the real difference here. Looking for the specific in order to obey it, or looking to understand the gospel in order to o- obey the gospel, and and I think that's the obedience we're looking for here. So in the, on the in terms of the collection, every day, first day of the week as a collection, I'm all for it. Yeah, I just don't think it's commanded every first day of the week. I think it's a good practice. It's a good regular, spiritually formative habit to give corporately. I I think that that's a good thing to do. But it doesn't exhaust the generosity of the grace of God in our lives. And it calls us to so much more. And I think everybody would agree with that. Whatever hermeneutic you're using, you're going to agree with that. The problem is that we get so abstracted with the details um, and so we enforce the details and we draw lines over the perceived details that we miss the heart of God uh, in the midst of how we relate to one another and care for one another.
0: How, how does this change for us some? Um, the, the way, well, not just some, but, but dramatically so, the way we look at things like salvation and our response to God and worship, because many of us were reared in an environment where we tended to package our doctrines and our practice. Uh, for example, we, we had the five steps of salvation, um, faith, repentance, confession, baptism, faithfulness, or other things could have been included in the list depending upon uh, where you grew up, five acts of worship. Um, for somebody kind of schooled in that and who, who mm-hmm. clings to that... Ha- how does this you know, really change the way we look at becoming a Christian and worshiping God rather than just having these steps we kind of go through?
2: Uh, that's a good question, because it is, it is, it's a real question. Um, because as we think about this pivoting from a blueprint hermeneutic to a theological hermeneutic, um, that's one of the things that concerns us. How am I going to be sure that I'm obeying God now? How can I be sure I'm I'm saved, right? I need that list. I need the five acts of worship so I can say, okay, done it, done. You know, okay, I got it. I need those five acts of worship so that I can make sure I'm doing this right, right? So it's a a very strong sense of security and comfort that comes from uh, having that kind of list. And I understand that. You know, sometimes we need those sorts of lists. Uh, and they're not necessarily a bad list. The problem is that we generated those lists by a particular way of reading the Bible. Those lists aren't in the Bible like that. We generated those lists. We created a list. In one sense, we created a creed. (laughs) We created a set of things to believe and practice, right, that are not found in the Bible in exactly that way. We had to set the Bible in order, right? We had to take the Bible and put it in its, as one writer said, its proper order. And that's the problem. So how do we reconceive it then in a theological uh, way? That's why story is so important. Narrative is so important. Because what we are invited into is to join the story of God, to participate in the story of God, to become a, a participant in the story of God. And when we read the story, this is what we see. We see people becoming part of the story like this. They become part of the story by trusting in Christ and repenting of their sins and being baptized. That's how they join the story. It's not about, okay, let's abstract that out and we'll make a list. No, let's let's just become part of the narrative. I'm a person who has repented of my sins, and I have been baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ. I'm part of the story, and that becomes the focus. And so it's not about, do we get all that right? But rather, did I, or have I become part of this ongoing work of God in the world which God has invited me into to follow Jesus. And so I follow Jesus. Uh, and I think worship becomes the same sort of thing um, because the point is, it seems to me, uh, is about embodying the gospel. So when I think about the assembly, I don't think in necessarily in terms of, okay, what's the list of things to do in the assembly? Or what's the list of things not to do in the assembly? When we, where's you know What's excluded? What's included? I don't think about it that way. I think about it more in line with how do I embody the gospel when the church assembles? How do we embody the gospel when the church assembles? When the people assemble with us, are they going to see the gospel? Are they going to hear the gospel? Are they going to experience the gospel? And it's not about rules of some sort of um, uh, generated from a list, an exclusive list in some versions of it. Uh, Other versions of it, it's not necessarily an exclusive list, uh, but it is a necessary list. right? Um, I'm thinking of it more, okay, is the gospel proclaimed? Is it embodied? Is it practiced? Is it experienced? And that's how I want to think about regulating the assembly. And I use that word regulate because the principle of the blueprint pattern is God has regulated his worship. God has regulated worship. So we got to find the regulations. We got to find the specifics. We got to find the rules that exclude and include. I don't think that that's how Scripture brings us this worship. It rather calls us to embody Jesus Christ. Um, And so assembly is regulated not by a list of specifics generated by a, a method but is regulated by the gospel. Do we embody the gospel? Do we experience the gospel? Do we hear the gospel uh, when we assemble? And that becomes a very practical way of thinking. Okay. Now, what that means is we got to know what the gospel is, right? We got to know it well. We got to become, we have to, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter three, we need to read Paul, So that we will know or we will understand the mystery of Christ. Because if we don't understand the mystery of Christ, we're going to embody something else. Mm -hmm. If we know the mystery of Christ, then we can embody Christ Mm -hmm. in our assemblies and worship with Christ and to Christ and for Christ and, you know, uh, and be empowered by the spirit in that. So. That that's kind of how I, I think about the you know the list we generate, which can be helpful, they're not necessarily bad, but when they substitute for or they um, uh, subvert the center that we embody Christ, that's when it becomes a problem.
1: Yeah, I really appreciated the. Um... Emphasis or what maybe it seemed like emphasis to me because that's what God was showing me. But in that it's the it's about the transformation into the story can like instead of being able to look at the set of the blueprint or the rules. Did we do these things? It's are we are we showing that we're transformed in the likeness of Christ? Hmm. And so if we're judging things through that lens instead of did we check everything off the list? Which is on? one group's list, but not another group's list, or in one person's list, but not everybody's list. So I really like the kind of shift in, in kind of looking at like how, how we know if we're interpreting the Bible in a way that is faithful, can be seen in the transformative power of it through our churches and through ourselves. So that's really,
2: I'm sorry, I interrupted you.
1: No, that's okay. I was just going to say that was so helpful to me.
2: Well, I, I found your comment really helpful because it reminds us that uh, the goal of reading Scripture and discerning the will of God, the goal is transformation, to become like God, right? To become, be conformed to the image of Christ. And so if we keep the goal in mind when we're reading Scripture, it'll help us major in the majors, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and not in the minors. So I think this is part of what Jesus did in reading Scripture. He said, you know, in Matthew chapter 12, he says, um, if you had known what this meant, if you had really known what this meant, you would not have condemned the innocent. And, and what he was talking about was Hosea 6, verse 6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Well, if you really had known what that meant, um, that I think that's the call to us. When we're reading Scripture, are we really paying attention to the goal that God has in mind for us? and the gospel that God has acted within to bring us to that goal and to form us in that way? Um, are we paying attention to the, to the fundamental story and how it shapes us rather than abstracting and creating lists that are not in the Bible? They're not in the Bible in that way we create them, um, We've abstracted them. We can point to verses, yeah, and we can collect them and say, okay, they're in the Bible, but they're not in the Bible exactly that way. Mm -hmm. And is that an exclusive list? Well, you know, all sorts of questions come into play. But as you said, Tina, um, this is about the goal of transformation. And we read the Bible for the goal of transformation, to be transformed into the image of Christ.
1: John Mark, how do you think that in the Stone Campbell movement, generally speaking, how did we shift from being a people that was focused on unity to, to the rigid lines that define who's in and who's out, who's right or who's wrong, um, who's following the list the best, whose list is the best? How did we move away from like the foundational thing of unity and end up with so many divisions that we have now within our unity movement.
2: Yeah, that that's a good question. Um, I think there's a lot of factors. Uh, it's it's very complicated. It seems to me. On the one hand, I think it's helpful to remember that uh, our forebears uh, in the Restoration Movement had a strong commitment to obey God. They wanted to obey God and everything, and so there they had the sincere um, desire. Uh, and they knew that they needed to read the Bible to find that, and they and they tried to read the Bible best they could, and they read the Bible in order to obey God, and, and we got to honor that, you know, and that's one of the reasons they wanted unity, right? Is is because Jesus prayed for unity, so uh, that that's part of their obedience is is to find that unity. So on the one hand, we honor that. On on the other hand, there the practice of the blueprint hermeneutic has a history of divisiveness. And it's not just a history within the Stone Campbell movement or the Restoration movement. It's a history that goes back to Zwingli in 1525 in Zurich, Switzerland. It's a history that we find in Calvin. It's a history you find in the Puritans. You find in the Presbyterians. You find in the dissenters of England. In fact, England was filled with all sorts of diverse groups who divided over what the pattern should be, right? What was in the pattern? What's, what is What is the detailed pattern? Um, and even when we appeal to some of those groups, as I've seen some of our people do, well, you know, Church of Christ was back there in the 1600s. Well, you know, those Churches of Christ didn't think anybody could baptize but the minister, um, you know, there's all sorts of differences that we can find some similarities, but there's all sorts of differences as well. So my point is that the blueprint hermeneutic, create, though it was intended to get us all back to the Bible and say, okay, what does the Bible say? It was, uh, if it, it had the opposite effect. That is, it created a diversity among believers because not everybody saw it the same way. I mean, we just go through our history, our Bible classes, good things or bad things, you know, Uh, or one cup or multiple cups, good or bad, Uh, instrumental music or non-instrumental music. Um, Should we lay hands on appointing elders or should we not lay hands on appointing elders? That was a divisive one, too. I mean, there's all sorts, you read our history, there's all sorts of particulars that we divided over. Because we were using a hermeneutic that stressed, you got to find the right specific. You got to find it, it, it's what it excludes, what it's coordinate with, what is general, what is specific, what's expedient, what's essential, and nobody can agree on that. Um, it, you know, at some levels, there's agreement, of course, because there's peer groups and peer pressure and camaraderie and institutional. Um camaraderie, but ultimately, there's a whole history of division, rooted in the regulative principle, that sense of blueprint hermeneutic uh,
0: John Mark this has impacted even you know discussions about baptism uh, in back in 2009, you published a article on rebaptism. It's called Rebaptism, the Real Rub. And you you talked about, and and Rubel uh, Shelley talked about this in our podcast with him as well. You talked about the Tennessee and the Texas traditions. And there was this debate between uh, Austin McGrary at the Firm Foundation and those at uh, the Gospel Advocate on the subject of what's required to be known or understood. Hmm. And the Texas tradition became you need to see baptism and understand it as being for the remission of sin. Um, while the other side argued that faith and allegiance to Jesus was required, but not precise knowledge of any one one of the promises, you might say, that that results from baptism. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of an example of how this narrative you're describing, this theological model of interpreting Scripture would have helped a great deal in that situation? Because that seems to be the result of arguing with a blueprint mentality
2: yeah I think uh, I think that's helpful. Maybe um, maybe a way of saying it is that when you have as a specific part of the blueprint that you must be immersed believing in Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing your sin, and that you must know that baptism is the very moment when you cross the line from lost to saved. And if you don't know that, uh, then it then it doesn't work. It's not effective, right? Uh, and that's part of a specified blueprint kind of thing, right? It, it has to meet these these requirements. Uh, and that was McGarry in the firm foundation sort of view. Now, Lipscomb had a different view and he said, no, if, if you obey, you obey, right? And he had this kind of one-to-one correspondence sort of thing. If if you do this because God told you, hey, that's enough. <laughs> you know, you don't have to know why. You don't have to understand the design of it. You don't have to know what happened. If If God told you to do it, you do it. And, and that's another, you know, that's still within the blueprint mentality to some degree um, because it's just reproducing. Um, I, I don't want to be I want to be careful about characterizing it uh, because there's something theological going on there as well. Uh, but it does. It's an intramural discussion. And so there were some I mean, there are some churches of Christ today. Right. That if you're not baptized, knowing that that's the moment when you're crossing from lost to saved, that baptism doesn't count. And there are a lot of churches of Christ that still think that way uh, and practice it that way. So yeah, I think it is a part of that specification. And it's just another example of the division. Whereas I think a theological way of understanding that is, is to understand you're you have entered the story of Jesus and you have followed Jesus into the water, and God does what God does. And we embrace God's story. We embrace God's gifts uh, all along the line, and we and we see in what Jesus God did with Jesus at baptism that that's also for us. And we participate in the story, Uh, and we can think theologically about what that baptism is, what it means, and how it how it forms us and how it transforms us, and how it connects us to Christ, and how um, the Spirit is poured out upon us just like it was Jesus and. You know, those are theological things we can think about to, to give a deeper, richer, more robust understanding of what's happening in baptism. But the simple participation in the story is the beginning point, right? It's it's where we start. It's where Jesus started his ministry. It's where disciples begin their journey uh, in terms of being part of the community as well.
1: Yeah. John Mark, how might reading scripture from this more narrative or theological view better equip us as image bearers? How how might it better inform our view of Jesus's mission for the church?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, You know, in in the blueprint model that I grew up with and that I described in the book, the mission of the church was really three things. It was evangelism, benevolence and edification and anything else that wasn't church's responsibility. you know church doesn't have anything to do with anything else because those are the things that are specified. Uh, and that's an exclusive specification um, which means um, we have to decide what's involved with each of those and to what extent do we do we speak about injustice in the world, for example? Well, that's not part of the mission of church. And the mission of church is is what we get from Acts and the Epistles. Because the church began at Pentecost, and the Acts and the Epistles describe the church, and we do what the church did. What I think a theological reading reminds us is that we're the body of Christ. We don't do what the church did. We do what Jesus did that Jesus is the, the mission of Jesus is the mission of the church. And that's a way of theologically reading it because we don't get there through the blueprint because the blueprint has said the Gospels don't tell us what the church does.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and so the story of Jesus is left out of, of how the church thinks of itself, how the church conceives its mission, how the church thinks about what it's supposed to be doing in the world. But when we understand that the mission of Jesus is the mission of the church, then it broadens our horizons a little bit uh, to see the sorts of things Jesus was doing. Jesus was involved in healings. Jesus was involved in liberating the oppressed. Jesus was involved in reaching out to the marginalized. Jesus was involved in being at tables with people, social sorts of moments. I mean, there's all kinds of things we could go, we could explore with that. But it helps us to become more fully the image of God. Instead of restricting the church to these particular works, we see that the church is to become the image of God in the world, the image of Christ as the body of Christ, which is a fuller, more robust kind of way of thinking about um, who we are as a church, and that we can't constrict everything to the three specifications that emerged out of. at least in my context, uh, the particular blueprint that uh, I lived with.
0: What you just said there was, I think, profound for, for many people, but you, you don't go, you don't go to the epistles and try to replicate what the church did. The mission of the church is to look at Jesus and see what he did.
2: right and I think
0: well that, ju- that just need, needs to hang there. Go yeah I ahead. think and,
2: and Paul does it this is not to say Jesus versus Paul. Let's let's be clear. I, I have a little section in the book where I, I want to make that very clear. This is not Jesus versus Paul. This is the Gospels and Paul both pointing us to Jesus. They yes. both point us to Jesus as the touchstone, as the as the measuring stick, you might say, as the gospel that we are to embody. So it's not Jesus over against Paul. It's rather Jesus is the center, and we learn about Jesus from not only the Gospels but also Paul.
0: Yeah, it's not not the red letter verses are more important than the epistles. It's that the epistles are right helping to form us into communities that are living out the life of Jesus, and as exactly authoritative and and uh, inspired for us. Well, that's good.
2: I think that's correct.
0: Um, John, Mark, the times flown, and and we've so appreciated your being with us. We hope you'll return. Uh, at some point in the future, to have some other conversations about some other things, um, we hope you've enjoyed the conversation.
2: Yes, I have. Thank you very much.
0: It's it's been a real real blessing to have you. I want to say to our readers, the book again that we've been talking about is "Searching for the Pattern: My Journey in Interpreting the Bible." John Mark Hicks is uh, the author and our guest today and last week. If you didn't hear last week's podcast, go back and listen. Um, but you will uh, you'll be blessed by reading the book I, again I, I strongly encourage you to go online if you haven't purchased the book and and read it and you'll know more of what we've been talking about here uh, again there are other resources that John Mark uh, makes available johnmarkhicks.com has a lot of those um and he's got about 15 other books he's got a couple of new books uh, not brand new, but ones that have recently been released, Women Serving God, My Journey in Understanding Their Story in the Bible, um, and Around the Bible in 80 Days, the story of God from creation to new creation. Do You got any other uh, well, things in the pipeline that you'd like to talk about or talk about these books for just a moment?
2: Well, I, I do have some other things I'm working on, but I think these two books really are follow-ups to uh, this book, Searching for the Pattern. I then take the blueprint theological model to talk about women serving God uh, and how do we read scripture um, and thinking about women serving God. And um, then then 80 days around the Bible is is the big story. It's the big drama of God. Uh, And 80 days is like 500 words a day with a scripture, prayer and a, a meditation question uh, you could take five minutes a day and walk through the whole big story, and that I think is our common confession. In fact, I wrote that book to say this is what Christians believe. Mm-hmm. This is not this is what this is not what a person grow, who grew up in churches of Christ believes um, in isolation from others, or what someone in a Baptist church believes in isolation from others. This is the common confession of all believers. And spend 80 days walking through the story and spend 80 days in unity with other believers, basically. Mm,
0: I'll look forward to that.
1: Yeah, it looks like I've got something else for my book list. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I will say that The Women Serving God um, was a really uh, excellent read and I think a great resource for many churches that are struggling with the issue of women's role in the church. And that is something that right now is dividing us. Um, and I think this could really help broaden the conversation in a way that, um, that's helpful to the body of Christ. John Mark, what else are you working on right now? Are there other things you want to share with us?
2: Um, well, you know, I think, um, I, I promised a third volume in, you know, searching for the pattern and in women serving God, I promised a third volume about leadership and, and, uh, that is working on the back, uh, burners. Um, uh, maybe that will be out next year sometime, but, uh, still got a little work to do on that one.
0: And, and you're still teaching at Lipscomb university or, or- what are you encouraged by and what you see in your students that are coming through the university?
2: Oh, I, yeah, there's a lot to be encouraged about. Um, there's there's passion. There's a passion for people. There's a passion for service. There's a passion for God. I see that in these students. I wish there were more of them, but uh, I see that in the students that I know and, and they want to serve God. Uh, they're, they're, they're struggling with how to find out, find a way to do that whether in traditional church settings or in nonprofit settings or in other sorts of settings or new church plant kind of settings, So there's a struggle to, to discover where is God going to plant me <laughs> so I can grow. Um, but the passion is there and I'm grateful for that.
0: Well, here's, here's a question that we all often end with in our podcasts with a guest Um if, if Tina and I were to meet you over on the campus of Lipscomb or there in Nashville somewhere and had a cup of coffee with you, our, our motto here is unity begins with a cup of coffee. And by that, we mean we're, we're encouraging gatherings and groups of people and one-to-one meetings between sometimes estranged believers, people in a community that, uh, you know, perhaps are in churches not too far from one another, but they've never gotten to know one another. And, and particularly in, in this stream of churches, the restoration stream, if we were to come to Nashville and have a cup of coffee with you, uh, how do you take, this is assuming you drink coffee. I guess I should start saying that Tina, right? How, how do you mm-hmm. take Since your, I don't drink coffee. That's right. How do you take your coffee? Uh,
2: I don't drink coffee. <laughs> Yay, <John Mark! laughs> Oh, I, I never have, never have drank it. Um, But I do drink a nice Diet Coke or something like that. and be glad to sit down with anyone. We have a nice place over here by Lipscomb called The Well. The profits of The Well go to dig wells in Africa. So we go spend money there so we can dig wells in Africa. But I buy Cokes or hot chocolate. So I'll have a hot chocolate and you can have a hot coffee. That'll be fine.
0: Well, we'd we'd love to buy you a hot chocolate or a (laughs) Coke to drink over there um it's so good man uh, well
2: thank you very much i, I did want to say let me a shout out to ruble since you mentioned him ruble has was my teacher at Hardeman uh he's been a close friend for years a mentor in so many ways and uh, i am so grateful for his life and and how he um how he has been in my life in so many ways um I, I reminded him the other day at, on the anniversary of my wife's death. She died on April, April 30th, 1980. And I still have a card Rubel sent me Aww. after her death. And I was looking at my cards the other day and, and there he was. I mean, he was there for me mm. all along. So I'm grateful for that. Well,
0: he- yeah,
1: his podcast, uh, was fantastic. I've, we did two sessions with him and I am still, you know, a couple of weeks later, still thinking through some of the things that he shared. And he really does embody so much of really like the transformation that we're, we're trying mm-hmm. to achieve. He just is really a godly man. I really enjoyed our time with him as well.
2: Yeah. Always worth listening to. Go back and hear that podcast if you haven't heard it. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, it's been a privilege to have you, John Mark, and I appreciate the way you've, oh, thank you have blessed my ministry through your work and so many others. Uh, folks, we encourage you to join us again next week. We've got some more discussion as we continue our series on uh, tearing down and building back up based in Ecclesiastes 3 and our common theme of unity in the body of Christ. It'll all continue next week. Join us again for another good conversation. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. Please check out commongroundsunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. If you can't find a gathering in your area, we can help you start one. It's not difficult or time-consuming, and we'll help you out along the way. It really does simply start with a cup of coffee. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.